Good morning. If you would please turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 will be our text this morning. Uh, the other day, uh, there was nothing really good on sports talk radio, and my other talk radio I usually listen to didn't have anything good on. Uh, so I turned the dial over to NPR, and I caught at that moment a group of atheists having a conversation. Now, these were self-proclaimed, don't-believe-in-God atheists. And the topic of discussion was, in light of all the recent election turmoil and everything going on with the recent electing of new leaders for our country, they wanted to know, how can we have unity in spite of our great diversity? And one gentleman on this program, he said, what we need is more tolerance. We need to understand that different people have different ideas of justice, and we need to seek to understand other people's definition of justice. And even if your definition of justice is different than my own, I need to celebrate that we're both trying to achieve justice, we just happen to be going about it in different ways. And that all sounds very pleasant, right? What we need to have is greater empathy for other people's point of view, greater understanding, greater tolerance for other people's viewpoints. Okay, and the basic conclusion at this part of their discussion was tolerance is the chief virtue. If we just had enough tolerance, we could all get along with each other. Okay, then one of the other atheists on the program, he said, well, what about people in the not-too-distant past who practiced lynching? Weren't they trying to achieve justice? Or what about the, the Nazis in the Third Reich? When they were persecuting people, weren't they trying to achieve justice? So are you saying what we need to do is try to just better understand their perspective and celebrate the ways that they're trying to achieve justice? To which the first guy said, no, those people need to be in jail. Right? Okay, but then the group of atheists really struggled with this. Because we know that lynching is evil. We know that the Nazis were evil. We know that when ISIS is throwing homosexuals off of rooftops or when they're beheading dissidents, that that's evil. Okay? But we also know they're doing that to promote their own view of justice. So what do we do? Do we tolerate someone else's perspective? Or do we call things evil when we think they're evil, even if you and I disagree on whether or not they're wrong. Okay, is tolerance really the chief virtue? Is it really the chief way to achieve peace and unity? Okay, they struggled with this. And we could do this with a lot of moral questions, right? Okay, there's some cultures around the world that promote honor killings as a way of maintaining justice. Okay, some cultures in the world promote men over women or one particular caste of people over another as a way of maintaining justice. Okay, and these other cultures in our world do this with the intention of pursuing what's good and right. Okay, and the atheists on this program really struggled with this because all of them want to fight for justice, but at the end of the day, who gets to decide which culture's values determine the definition of justice? Okay, you see the problem that they have? Okay, if there's no objective standard that defines what's good and what's wrong, then how can you say that you're promoting what's good if someone else's definition of good disagrees with your definition of good? What do we do? Okay, they couldn't come up with a good answer to that, and I would argue that the reason they couldn't is because there isn't one. Right? Tolerance sounds great, but tolerance by itself cannot take you all the way to unity 
and harmony. I don't think tolerance can be the chief virtue. Now, do we as Christians believe that tolerance is a virtue? Yes. Okay, several of you are like, I don't know what to say now. Okay, yes. We believe tolerance is a virtue. Right? We just finished last week talking about how we need to show more empathy. The entire sermon last Sunday was, how can you look through someone else's perspective and have empathy for other people with where they are? Okay, empathy is the basis for tolerance and justice. If we claim to follow Jesus, we need to approach relationships seeking to understand, seeking the best interests of the other. Okay, for thousands of years, Christians have preached a need for greater empathy. Okay, but that can't be where it ends. Right? That can't be our chief virtue. Right? And I tell you all of this because as we get to the very end of Romans chapter 13, Paul has laid out a lot of different ethical things, things he says, if you want to live a Christian life, here's what it looks like. And finally, at the end of Romans 13, he gives us what is the chief virtue. Which virtue really does have the power to create unity and peace? Which virtue can lead you to right justice no matter what your cultural background is? Okay? Notice what he says starting in verse 8 of chapter 13. He says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. I think far more powerful than the virtue of tolerance is the virtue of love. I think indisputably, Love has to be the chief virtue. Okay, in fact, do you know how many times in your Bible it says, love your neighbor as yourself? Anyone have a good guess on that? How many times does it say, love your neighbor as yourself? Ten. Okay, ten times in Scripture, the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. Moses says this first. Jesus repeats it a couple of different times. Now Paul says it yet again. Do you really want to live a life pleasing to God? Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? And the implication from this text is that I know how to love myself. Right? You don't have to teach someone how to love themselves. Hey, I watch my two kids at three years old and seven years old, uh, and one of them wants something that the other one has in his hand. When one of them sees the other one, and the other kid has a toy that he wants, do you think that they stop and think, you know, I know that my brother has that toy right now, but even though I want it, I'm going to look out for my brother's best interests, and I'm going to go find something else to play with. After all, I want what's best for my brother, not myself. Okay? Is that the rationale in my three-year-old's brain? No. Okay, or do they try to take what they want with whatever force they feel like they need to have to take it, and then whine if they don't get it? Okay, why? Because they're selfish little heathens. Okay? That's what kids are. They think about their own needs first. Naturally, if you've ever had little kids, if you've ever interacted with little kids, you know they're selfish. They think about themselves. They think about their wants. They think about what they want to do. And then if they don't get it, they whine about it. Okay, again, aren't you glad we all grow out of that, right? 
hey, I am really good at, I was born with the instinct to look out for my own best interests. The command for the followers of Jesus, though, is that as followers of Christ, as good as we are about taking care of our own needs, we should be equally good at providing for the needs of people around us. Love your neighbor as yourself. And starting in verse 8, Paul uses the concept of debt to talk about what this kind of love looks like, right? And this this use of debt is pretty self-explanatory. Most of us know a whole lot more about debt than we ever wanted to know. In fact, I looked it up for you just to find out how much we as a culture know about debt. It turns out that the average U.S. household with debt, uh, they owe about 16 grand in credit card debt. Uh, Their mortgage is close to $170,000. And the average U.S. household owes over $27,000 in car debt um, and $48,000 on their student loans. According to the data, about 70% of U.S. households are in significant debt. This doesn't even count the $20 trillion our government owes, right? We understand debt. We understand it pretty well. But most of us who have accumulated debt at least have some hope of eventually paying it off, right? We want to get out of debt. We make payment plans. We consolidate. We try to get better interest rates. We do whatever we need to do to try to get out of debt. I know a couple of months ago, Rachel and I had a little party. We finally made our last student loan payments. If that doesn't get an amen, I don't know what can. Right? I mean, come on. That was big. Right? We were excited about that. Felt great. One of my favorite things to do is usually when I'm going home, I catch the very tail end of the Dave Ramsey show, and you hear people doing their debt-free scream. Right? When people finally pay off that last debt, they celebrate, they scream about it, they cheer. Why? Because they're excited to finally be out of all their debts. We want to be debt-free. Okay, but I want you to notice what Paul says about the debt that we have to love each other. He says it is a debt that will continue. He calls it a continuing debt, a never-ending debt. Okay, and if you remember, everything Paul says in the book of Romans is a revisioning of life on the other side of the gospel. Okay, Paul sits down when he writes Romans, he says, okay, if the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is true, okay, which Paul knows it's true, he saw the resurrected Lord. If that really happened, then how does that change everything? Okay, and that's what Romans is. How does the death of Jesus, how does the resurrection change everything. He says you were living your life, you learned of the story of Jesus, and on the other side of that story, everything has to be completely different. And if it's true that Jesus died for you, then you are under debt to Jesus. Hey, can you ever repay that debt? No, we sing songs about that, right? He paid a debt, he didn't know we owe a debt we can't pay, right? You can never pay back the debt of love that Jesus Christ paid for you. You will always be indebted to love like Jesus first loved you. We have a debt to love others. Alright, so how do we do that? What does it look like for me to love my neighbor? Paul says a couple of different things in this section. First off, if I really love my neighbor, I will share. Again, I'm getting back to my roots, right, of talking to my three-year-old and seven-year-old. What does it look like to share? Well, if I really love my neighbor, I'll share my time. I'll share my money, right? We have to share our resources with the people around us. 
hey, also, I think we need to share our story. What does it look like for me to be able to tell my neighbor, I once was lost in sin, I met Jesus, and now I have hope. Are you ready to tell the story of what Jesus has done for you? Are you ready to share the Gospel? If you're not sharing, you can't claim to really love your neighbor. Do you love your neighbor? You'll share with them. Alright, number two. Paul also says, if I really love, then I won't just follow rules. Okay? Now, Paul lists several rules in this set of verses. He says, thou shalt not covet, steal, murder, commit adultery. Okay, Paul is listing four of the big Ten Commandments saying, okay guys, you know the basic rules. But if you take seriously the debt that we have to love each other, then you follow the rules, but you don't follow them just because you're following rules. You follow them because you love the other person. Okay, we talked a little bit about this point when we had our series on sexual purity. And this certainly applies to sex, but it applies to everything. Okay, and I've got a good story to illustrate this, and I like this story because it makes me look good. Okay? I do what I can, right? Um, several months ago, I was in the mall, and a very attractive young woman was trying to sell me something. Okay, she started being just a little bit too friendly, which I know some of you find it hard to believe that an attractive woman in the mall was hitting on me, but it actually happened, okay? I know she was just trying to make a sale, but either way, there was an attractive woman in the mall hitting on me. Okay, and if she starts to get a little too friendly, I tell her that I'm married. Okay? And this is not just a preacher story, this actually happened. All right? I tell her I'm married, and so what she did at that point is she looked me up and down, raised an eyebrow, and said, happily? Yes! <laughs> and I think I hear my wife calling. i got to go, right? Okay, and, and again, I know she was just trying to make a sale. But still, all right, I got out of there as quickly as I could. Now, why did I want to get out of there so fast? All right, I'll make this a multiple choice quiz, okay? Why did I want to get out of there so fast? Was it because, A, I'm afraid of the consequences of cheating, right? There are social consequences to cheating. There's the threat of catching something. There's the threat of physical violence that my wife has held over my head, right? There's, there's the fear that I would get caught if I had cheated with this woman, right? Is that why I fled? That's A. Okay, or did I flee because B? There is a rule in the Bible which says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Is that why I fled from this woman? Or C, because I love my wife. Now, are all three of those good reasons not to cheat? Absolutely. Okay, does one of those represent more maturity than the other two? Does my wife hope that the reason I fled was because of C and not just because of A and B? Right? All three of these have the potential to keep a man faithful in his marriage, but one of these represents real love. See the difference between following a rule and acting out of love? Both of them would keep you from cheating, but only one of them represents living like Jesus Christ. Paul claims that love is the fulfillment of the law. Okay, we live in a world that is way too complicated for there to be a rule for everything you encounter. 
you will encounter lots of moral decisions in your life where you can't just point to a book, chapter, and verse and say, well, here it says, thou shalt not, so that's what I'm going to do, right? There's a lot of circumstances in your life you will run into where there's not just a very clear, explicit verse of Scripture that you can point to, but you can still make the right decision by following the law of love. If we truly start walking and loving like Jesus walked and loved, we will develop the kind of spiritual maturity that he had and we will make right choices because we love. So I won't steal from you, not because there's a command that says thou shalt not steal, but I won't steal from you because I don't want to do that to you. Okay? I won't go chase after idols, not because there's a command that says don't chase idols, but because that's not where my heart is. We need to learn how to live in love. And if we do that, the commandments will take care of themselves. I don't need a commandment for everything if I can walk as Jesus did and love the way that Jesus loved. Now, sometimes we make the right decision because we fear the consequences. Sometimes we make the right decision because we're following a command of Scripture. That's okay, right? It is always okay for us to make the right choice because we understand consequences or we see a rule in Scripture. But I'm hoping that as I continue to mature in my faith, I will start more and more making right decisions because I love, not just because I'm following rules. That all make sense? That all work? I'm not allowed to go buy a certain kiosk in the mall again, apparently. All right, notice where Paul goes from this next, verse 11. He says, and do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Recently, I was watching a documentary, and it was about the end of World War II. And I'd seen several stuff before about World War II, and I knew about a lot of the battles at the end of the war, but this documentary specifically was looking not at the battles they were fighting, but it was looking at how the leaders of all of the countries were acting towards the end of the war. Okay, specifically, on our side of things, and something I didn't know was that towards the end of the war, when things were still far from certain, when it still looked like Hitler and the Japanese could win, the Allies had several meetings talking about the peace. Okay? Stalin and Churchill and our own presidents okay, got together and they met talking about what is the world going to look like after we win this war. Okay? Before the war was won, they met several times, had several cables going back and forth, Lots of different diplomatic conversations between the U.S., Britain, and Russia on what does the world look like post-war. Okay, there was a lot to decide. Should all of those British and French and Dutch colonies go back to European control, or are they free now? Okay, after the Russians kick the Nazis out of Eastern Europe, do they get to keep what they conquer? Okay, how would we divide Germany? How would we redraw the Middle East and create a home for all of the displaced Jews? What would the relationship between all the post-war powers look like? Okay, there were all sorts of things that the Allies tried to work out even when they were still 
fighting the war. Now, why would they do that? Why would they start making decisions as if they were the only world powers when Germany and Japan were still fighting? Well, they did it because they knew that a new world was coming. They knew that someday, fairly soon, there would be peace. And on the other side of that peace, they needed to have their plans already in place for how the new world was going to look. They needed to start acting like the new world was here even before it arrived. Okay, here's the point. When we know that a big change is coming, we lean into the new reality. Okay, when you get engaged, you start to, make, to do things with your future spouse, like make financial decisions together, because you know a new world is coming, and you, so you start leaning into that reality. I, I remember Rachel and I, when we got, when we got engaged, uh, we combined our bank accounts about a month before we got married, so that we could go ahead and get all of our stuff in line for when the wedding happens. Okay? When you find out you're going to have a kid, you start changing things in your reality even before the kid gets here. Why? Because you have to lean into that reality. You lean in to that new way of being. You prepare yourself to live in a new world before it gets here. Okay, here's the imagery of verses 11 through 14. Paul says that we as the church live on the edge of night turning to day. It is currently breaking dawn. It, well, how do we know this? Well, we know it because Jesus rose from the dead declaring that the powers of death are over. We know it because He promised He was going to come back and have a final victory over death. Okay, so where do we live right now? We live at the end of the war and the peace is coming. Paul says the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is that we know the battle is won. We know that Jesus is king. And the non-Christian still lives as if the power of death and destruction is always going to be in charge. Okay, so just like the Allies at the end of World War II started living as if the war was over even before the war was over, so too should we go ahead and live as if the light has dawned fully and the night is over. Okay, we have to lean into the new world that's coming Otherwise, we won't be ready for the daylight. Does that make sense? Okay, so what are the kinds of activities that happen at night? Right, Paul lists several. There's drunkenness and debauchery and jealousy. Okay, he's not trying to list all of the sins, but he's saying that if we're still stuck in those things, we're not ready for the new world. We're not ready for Jesus to be king. The time to start living as if Jesus is king is now. Okay, so how do we do this? How do we lean into our new daylight reality? Okay, several things we can look at. Right, if my priorities aren't any different than my neighbors, then I'm not doing this. Okay, if the things that I'm chasing, like positions and power and money, are the same as what my neighbors are chasing, then I'm not doing this. Our use of money needs to be different. If you can't look at my bank statement and see that I'm being sacrificial for the kingdom, then I'm not doing it. If I'm not being transformed by love that we talked about a few minutes ago, then I'm not doing this. If I still get worried and anxious about the same things that everyone around me is worried and anxious about, then I'm not doing it. The time for us to start living like Jesus is now. All right, we will continue this next week as we uh, talk more about what it looks like for us to live fully into the kingdom reality, even when we're still surrounded by darkness.
Uh, but the point this morning is, is, if you haven't been transformed by that love of Jesus, if you're not walking in His way, then the best time to do that is today. Uh, we're about to sing a few verses of an invitation song. During singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. We would love to talk with you or pray with you about anything that's going on in your life, uh, especially if you don't know that love of Jesus. We would love to talk to you about what that looks like for you. This song is the time for us to be here as a church for you. Before we sing that song, though, I'd like to speak a word of blessing over us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace.